Warning! Today's story contains a lot of profanity, a little violence, and spectacular savings on brand name goods. Parental and consumer discretion is advised. Escape Pod 80 November 16, 2006 Today's story, Union Dues, Clean Up in Aisle 5, by Jeffrey R. DeRangle. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. Let's talk about comics. There was a moderate kerfuffle in the past couple of weeks over at Wired Magazine. It turns out one of the National Book Award nominees this year is a graphic novel, a book called American Born Chinese by Gene Yang. That's very cool. One of the editors at Wired disagrees. In a regular column called The Luddite, he holds us up as evidence that we're living in an age of mediocrity. He says that the National Book Awards should be, quote, reserved for books that are, well, all words, and that the comic book does not deserve equal status with real novels or short stories. It's apples and oranges. Now, I'm not going to spend this whole intro picking the guy apart. It's already been done, a lot, by people smarter than me. The position he's taking is backwards enough that I'm half convinced he's just being a troll. If not, then he missed the memo about Mouse winning the Pulitzer more than a decade ago. No, it's not people saying really dumb things that concerns me. It's that dumb things tend to make the comics community kind of tetchy and defensive in response. And when they get defensive, they start drawing lines through their own community. Just as I feel there are forces in SF and fantasy who are trying to make it more, quote, literary and respectable, and shut out most of the books people read for fun, there are people in comics who say, it's not all superheroes, you know. Look, we're doing real stuff, too. And while breadth is good, I think some advocates are ignoring that there's stuff going on in those superhero lines that is just as deep and powerful as any fiction you'll find anywhere. I never really got into comics when I was a kid. I didn't pay attention at all until I was in college, when various friends lent me Watchmen and the entire Sandman collection. Those two titles made me a comics fan. Though it didn't take long before I realized the problem, I'd started at the top. You'd have a hard time matching those two in any medium for pure storytelling power, but I have found other comics that I've really liked that have moved me, and I'd say about half of them are superhero comics. Some of the Batman stories, or Kurt Busiek's Astro City, which makes the whole genre very, very human. I think Superman is, on the whole, pretty boring, except for the ones Alan Moore wrote, which were extraordinary even for Alan Moore. So, while I'm totally in favor of promoting the good, quote, literary comics like American Born Chinese or Mouse or Ghost World, I think it's important that comics defenders don't slice themselves too thin in trying to prove something to the world at large. Superheroes are the backbone of comics for a reason. They're big characters with big stories. They appeal to the sense of myth in all of us. Sure, not all of it's good. It's subject to Sturgeon's Law, just like everything else. But when it is good, there's a sense of power, even a sense of epic, that shouldn't be denied. I suppose you can deny it, and some people do. But putting on blinders and calling it just kid stuff doesn't make it true. So, our story today, not by coincidence, is another chapter in Jeffrey R. Durego's Union Dues universe. This time he takes it very down to earth. We present Clean Up in Aisle 5. This is Mr. Durego's fourth story in the series on Escape Pod. His first one, Iron Bars and the Glass Jaw, was voted by Escape Pod listeners as their favorite story of 2005. 
You don't have to have heard the prior stories to follow this one, but if you want to hear them, we'll have links in the show notes at escapepod.org. The story is read for us by Rich Siegfried of the Requiem of the Outcast podcast, and also the producer of Amazing Pulp Adventures, starring Mr. Adventure. That's really fun radio theater in the style of the old pulp serials. He's promised me more of those soon, so if you like what you hear, email him and tell him you're going to hold your breath until they come out. But don't actually hold it. Your ears will start ringing, and then you won't be able to listen to podcasts. So, please pick up the nearest courtesy phone. It's story time. Union Dues. Clean up in aisle five. By Jeffrey R. Durego. Chapter one. I thought you'd be, I don't know, more majestic. This is Mr. Henderson. He's about 35, overweight, nearly bald, and wearing a blue polyester vest with How Can I Help You screen printed across the front. Henderson is the general store manager for this brand spanking new Walmart location. I glance down at my costume and shrug. This is as majestic as I get. Great. Henderson glares at me for a few long seconds, puffs out his pink cheeks, and whispers, Shoulda booked the clowns. I shoulda booked the goddamn clowns. The Boston Pyramid is listening. I hear stifled snickers through my earpiece and try to unobtrusively shut down the helmet mic via the controls on my black gauntlet. Look, this isn't my idea of a good time either. Let's just make the best of it. The phone rings, cutting me off and shifting Henderson's attention back to the store. I back out of the small office adjacent to the massive backroom warehouse and wait. For Christ's sake, he snorts. I need this location up and running and turn in a profit by the end of the weekend. This is the biggest opening of the quarter and what did they send for a draw? No one McFriggin' nobody, that's who. I want it on the record that if we don't meet our goals this quarter, it's not my goddamn fault. A superhero? This guy's about as super as... Ah, forget it. Yeah, I got the inventory list. He goes on for another ten minutes and I stand there and take it all in because that's what I'm supposed to do. My orders were clear. Make the union look good. I'm already off to a wondrous start. Chapter 2 Henderson even managed to misspell my name on the magic marker and poster board sign hastily taped up over an empty card table. Today only, grand opening special guest, Skeleton Steel. There's an E at the end of my name. I've half a mind to call the pyramid and try to find out which of the luminaries thought this appearance would be a good idea, and more importantly, who screwed up the hard copy? The Union was supposed to send a banner, flyers, and complimentary copies of the new Union Tales comic line, in which I do not appear. Henderson put the table between a display stack of panty shields to the right and cases of Walmart brand sarsaparilla to the left. The Super Walmart is set to open in ten minutes, and all I've done is stand around. The employees won't talk to me and Henderson vanished as soon as he had the table out of the box. It's gonna be a long day. I've done two public appearances so far, both at retail outlets like this one, built as part of an urban renewal program on the property where a low-income neighborhood used to stand. A small crowd of protesters and former residents of the Imperial Village housing project clump at the parking lot entrance and wave signs demanding that the Super Walmart Corporation shut this store down and leave, as if putting up a closed sign in the giant windows will somehow restore the rows of particle board, concrete, and squalor of their pre-bog box lives. I understand their anger, 
but it's targeted at the wrong entity. They should instead be protesting at City Hall, where the zoning changes and tax relief package that encouraged the Super Mall Mart Corporation to build the store on this spot in the first place were approved. The other side of the argument stands at the row of cash register stations stretching along the front of the store. Many of these cashiers are probably former residents of the same project, now gainfully employed at six bucks an hour with no health insurance and no guarantee of a job tomorrow. A lifetime ago, I'd have stood and shouted with the protesters, and then gone home to my much more comfortable life in the suburbs with a sunburn and a smug sense of self-satisfaction. My parents would have been proud, too. Both of them university professors who instilled my sister and I with a deep vein of liberal conscience. They encouraged us to act whenever we saw injustice. Dad even kept a bank account with a couple grand in bail money, just in case, son. A precaution he learned during his hippie years at Berkeley. Jeez, that was a lifetime ago. Mr. Henderson gathers the entire staff at the center aisle of the store, right in front of the customer service island. They huddled like football players. A murmur grows and blooms into a loud cheer. Let's open the store! Smiles, everyone! Walmart! Walmart! We love you! They don't look at me. The whole point of me being here is to help humanize the union. We've had our share of bad press lately, so the tribunal reluctantly agreed to farm some of us out for high-visibility public appearances, including, but not limited to, charity auctions, retail openings and other commercial ventures, motivational speeches to public and private schools, graduation ceremonies, convocations, military funerals, and so on. Raising the normal's comfort level with us is not so simple anymore. Our bad press wasn't just one of us saying something stupid on TV. No, this time people were killed, actively killed, by one of we costumed folk. The luminaries swept most of it under the rug, but they weren't able to control the fallout, as usual, I might add. When the union gets bad press, then the comics don't sell. The action figures end up in the bargain bin, advertisers scoff at the union power hour cartoon, and the union scrounges. And we day-to-day -day heroes make the sacrifices when the luminaries worry about cash flow. No protein supplements this week, Skeleton Steel. Sorry. Training room closed to conserve electricity. No jet fuel this month. Let's all pray we don't have to leave home. All armor upgrades canceled. Try not to get hit on that patch. Chapter 3 I've been here two hours now. Not even a single person asked for my autograph. The crowd is heavier than a midweek morning would suggest. Kids everywhere. Must be Saturday or something. Or a school vacation. How can I not know what day or date it is? The little ones smile and point, but their parents consciously avoid looking at me as they wheel their blue plastic carriages by the card table and the union pamphlets spread out there. Grown-ups are jaded. Maybe they know us too well. Or they've just lost their sense of wonder. I try and break the ice. Smile big. Wave. But it's fruitless. My costume probably has something to do with their indifference. It's gray, form-fitting armor gel with accents in black and gold, black eye mask, gray cowl, and a black skeleton stenciled across my chest. I blend in with the gray shelves and boxes, more so under the harsh white fluorescent lights. The costume usually makes sense. I'm a super strategist. I hang back and direct the muscles, so I need to be almost camouflaged in case someone or something tries to take out the brains of the operation. Here at a store opening, though, the last thing the union needs is a PR guy who is virtually invisible against the background. 
The catch-22 is that the normals are much less receptive to super-strongs, mind-readers, or energy manipulators. The Union could have sent a super-agile, but their innate twitchiness makes even others in the Union nervous. So that leaves us in the super-strategy department to handle the PR duties, and we are the least likely to make an impression. That I speak ten languages fluently doesn't matter. Nor does the fact that I could simultaneously beat Gary Kasparov and Deep Blue at chess while also reorganizing a military battalion and rewriting the Union's catastrophic urgency manual. Mister? The kid is maybe five, and his voice shatters my musings. At first I didn't think he was talking to me. Brown bowl cut, brown eyes, fit for a kid. He smiles, waiting for me to answer. Where's your mother, kid? I glance around but don't see an obviously anxious parent. There's just him, and me, and the constant foot traffic. Which one are you? The kid fans out a small stack of superhero trading cards. But it's not a union deck. Figures. Let me see what you got there. I flip through and remember my old baseball card collection. I knew there was something special about me when at nine years old I accurately calculated the probable batting stats of each player on every team in the 1996 season after opening only one pack. The Union recruited me five years later after my dad beat a couple Atlantic City casinos for ten million bucks. I was caught on security camera tape telling him when and how to beat at the roulette wheel. These don't look like you. The card displayed a blue-costumed man leaping between buildings. I hand it back to him. Those guys aren't real, but I am. Wow, did I just say that? Maybe I'll tell the kid that Santa and the Easter Bunny aren't real either. He's staring at me now. I can almost see his little brain struggling to make sense of my answer. I should tell him to buy union cards, but, you know, he's five. Can you fly? He asks. No, can you? We both laugh a little. If I could fly, I'd never come down from the clouds. The kid points up at the ceiling tiles, but I know what he means. I can almost see the perfect blue reflected in his eyes. Can you do this? He flips out another card. Same guy in the blue tights. This time he's holding a dump truck over his head. Sorry, kid. That's not my angle. I'm a different kind of superhero. Eesh, how do you explain strategy to a kid? Man, I hate this. The crowd is even thicker and no one even slows down as they pass. I sit the kid on the table to keep him from getting run down by a couple of carriages. I think of the best way for the other superheroes on my team to do really hard things. Cripes, that makes no sense at all. Hard things? You mean like to be quiet when mommy is sleeping? He cocks his head after asking the question and holds it there as if the answer will make more sense if it seeps in through his ear. Yeah, that's the idea. He frowns and fiddles with the cards for a second. I'm not super then. One can only hope he isn't. But I can't say that. Union approved script, section 7, paragraph 2. Contingency for dealing with inquisitive normal children. The memorized words roll off my tongue before I can even think of what's being said. Everybody is a little bit super. You just have to find the thing that you do best, and that's where your super comes from. What a crock of shit. Uh, but I can't not say it. The union plants the script deep in our brains when we were recruited. The specific combination of the kids' words triggers the memory and the post-hypnotic suggestion to spew it out verbatim. The kid doesn't answer as he's obviously trying to pin down what he does best so he can wonder if that's super or just normal. What's your name? I scrunch down to one knee so we're at eye level. David. Well, that's a nice name. 
The kid fans through the deck without looking at me. What's yours? Skeleton Steel. He looks at me and laughs. That's a silly name. Really? Why? Because real people have real names like David and Michael and Jennifer, but not funny names like... He struggles through the syllables. Skeleton Steel. There's a lull in the foot traffic and I make out Henderson's corpulent form striding towards us. He doesn't look happy. Hey, Captain Nobody, we're moving your spot. Huh? Where? It's in the contract that I have to be in a high traffic area. If I had my way, to hell off Momot property. He slides the union brochures into a shopping bag and whistles for one of the stock people to fold up my table. Shoppers are complaining. We're putting you outside. Great. Just what I wanted. Whose kid is this? Henderson helps David off the table. Whose kid are you? I'm David. Where's your mom, David? Henderson grabs the stock boy by the arm. Take the kid to customer service and page his mom. You, Aero guy, you think you can manage to carry the table? My suit is augmented enough that I could throw the table through the front window. Or maybe twist the legs around Henderson's neck like a bow tie. Sure, I say, but he's already walking to the exit and doesn't hear me. The manager turns back and barks. What are you waiting for, an engraved invitation? I follow Henderson out. He surveys the parking lot, then storms north away from the exit door, past three soda machines and the two picnic tables where the employees take smoke breaks. Set up here. He drops a shopping bag and brushes past me and back through the automatic doors. Chapter 4 Five hours now and all I've drawn are hard looks from the relentless flow of escaping shoppers. The protesters chant even louder now, and intermingled with the usual, Hey, hey, ho, ho, super Walmart has got to go. Death to the Union. No special treatment for costumed freaks. They don't even bother to rhyme. A woman emerges. She's at least 80. Shocking white hair, thick glasses, cane. Struggling to steer the mostly empty carriage off the low curb. I'm not supposed to help her, and apparently neither is anyone else. Sheesh. At least five people have walked right past. Ma'am, I say and for a minute forget that I am in full costume and look like a grayscale grim reaper. She turns and her eyes widen. I can help you get those to your car. She's terrified. Get the hell away from me! She backpedals towards the store exit, abandoning the cart. Hey, asshole, leave the lady alone! Two teens, kids really, not old enough to drive, put themselves between her and me. One is blonde, blue-eyed, and lanky. The other is short and round, with glasses and fine curly hair. Their bravery is impressive, if misplaced. I ease back towards my little card table. Hey, I just wanted to help. Whatever. She doesn't need help from one of you nutcases. Blondie snaps while helping the old lady to her cart. Nutcases? You don't know a goddamn thing. Calm down, Skeleton Steel. Don't let yourself get aggravated. And now you're different? What the hell do we care? You nearly scared this old lady to death. What the hell's wrong with you? Blondie pokes curly hair in the side. Say something, man. Yeah, he says. Both boys escort her to the parking lot, and every now and then one of them glances back and sneers. Lovely. I walk back to the table and just stand there. The crowd is larger and more agitated and loud enough to be heard in the store. I try and ignore them and just watch the people entering and leaving. Maybe I'll see David again. At least that was sort of positive. But, again, he's five, and five-year-olds can't hate. Can they? 
The curly hair teen is back. Hey, Steel. He walks right to the table and fingers one of the brochures, but doesn't say anything. What? I wanted to apologize is all. My friend is a little hot-headed. It's all water under the bridge. I say through clenched teeth and remind myself that they are only human. Can you sign one of these for me? Curly hair smiles and shoves a brochure into my hands. Well, this is better. Sure, kid. I take the black magic marker and scrawl my name across the cover. When I turn back to hand it over, he's gone. Blondie's back. And three or four other kids, too, about 20 feet away in the parking lot. Blondie snarls. Let's see how super you are now! Threat assessment. Four attackers. Escape cut off by wall to south, soda machines, and picnic tables to east, and bystanders to west. Blondie has something in his hand. All of the kids do. They can't have guns or grenades. Rocks, maybe? I drop back and slam into the card table. Brochures float down around me. The first egg slams across my cheek. Knock it off! Another egg splashes across my chest. Another hits my teeth, and it's like being punched in the face. All I can do is stand here and take it. If I were super agile, they couldn't touch me. If I was super strong, they wouldn't dare touch me. If I was an energy manipulator, I could disperse them with a bolt or two of harmless lightning. If I was a mind reader, I'd convince them I was already gone. But I'm not any of those, and I'm trapped. The Union Charter doesn't cover these kinds of situations. The Luminary still can't conceive of a public that doesn't love them. Idealism can be dangerous. Supers and normals are supposed to be mutually neutral. Therefore, they don't antagonize us and we don't make them our servants. But today, I can certainly see the benefits of changing the agreement more to our favor. The commotion is drawing a crowd. Passing shoppers ring the boys on and, no pun intended, egg them on with chants of, Go back home. Go back home. Go back home. Car traffic snarls near the middle of the parking lot. I cover my face with my arms and hope they don't aim well enough to trigger the comlink on my wrist or the rest of my team will never let me live this down. The mob frenzies and closes on me. One of them punches me. Another kicks me. A third grabs my cape and yanks me backwards. I can't do a thing to stop them. I bellow, knock it off! But the mob is beyond hearing anything rational. They're starting to hurt me. Chapter 5 I see the blue sedan through the crowd, even though I'm on my knees in slicked and rapidly rotting egg. Threat assessment. Speeding. Crowded parking lot. Big distraction. Me. I see David and his mother, a hundred meters or so away. David sees the crowd and slips his hands free. He runs towards the mob. The driver of the blue sedan is watching me and not the road. David, no! I shrug off the closest three or four. Let me go, you assholes! I manage to land a rock-hard elbow in Blondie's chest and he crumples down breathless. I shove through the pack and charge into the open air. Brakes squeal. Then a thump-thump. David's mother screams. The crowd gasps. I wasn't fast enough. The blue sedan has bumped David then run over his left leg. The rear tire sits directly atop his shin. His superhero cards blow across the parking lot. I slam into the sedan's rear panel and shove, but the car doesn't budge. Don't just stand there! Help me! I wedge my fingers under the wheel well and try to lift, but even the suit augmentation doesn't give me enough strength. The crowd watches silently, but none of them move towards the car. Help me! I glare at them as I tug and shove at the back end. What the hell is wrong with you? I lift again just as the driver eases the car back. 
David's leg is free but broken, and he's still unconscious. Call 911! Call 911! God damn it! I cradle David in my arms. His hysterical mother kneels beside me. I can no longer hear the crowd. David! David, wake up and talk to me. I rip my glove off and gently check him for cuts. The back of his head is bleeding. The boy's eyes open lazily, but the color drains from his cheeks. I bellow, Somebody call a fucking ambulance! And turn back to the boy. David! His eyes flutter and close, but he's still breathing. Two inner-city cruisers skid to a stop at the periphery and rush to David and me and his mother. An ambulance follows only a minute or so later. David snaps to consciousness, screaming, Mommy! Mommy! My leg hurts! Calm down. Calm down. I've got you. Stay still, David. I try and smile, but my lips are swollen. Tears run down his flushed cheeks, but his crying subsides. I try and hand him to his mother, but he screams. You you saved me. He whimpers. I don't speak. I don't nod. I don't do anything. I caused this just by being here. The crowd is so thick the ambulance can't get close to the scene, and even inner city won't move them more than a few inches for fear of starting a full-scale riot. I'm going to give you to the doctors, David, so they can take care of you. Understand? He's crying again, but tries to nod. And your mom will be there, too. I ease David into the ambulance, and he starts to wail. I'm not allowed to accompany him to the hospital. His mother pushes past and sits beside the gurney as the paramedics strap the boy down. Someone screams out, You couldn't even save him! You didn't even try! The words are more than I can take. I turn to the crowd. You did this to him! You did this! All you had to do was leave me alone, and you didn't even do that! Blondie steps forward and shouts, He hit me! I want it on record that he hit me! You all saw how he elbowed my chest and pushed me under the crowd! His declaration fires the mob up again. I stride across the parking lot towards the Mall Mart entrance. Chapter 6 The employee washroom is tiny, just a toilet, small sink, mirror, and wastebasket. The paper towel dispenser is still boxed and leans on the wall beside the toilet. I've got egg everywhere and a nice fat upper lip. I close the door before slipping the mask off and splashing some cold water on my face. You okay in there? Henderson, the last person on earth I want to see. Fine. I wait, but he doesn't say anything else. I want to shove the door down. I want to slam him across the walls until there's nothing left but pulp. I want to rip the Super Walmart down to its foundation and salt the earth where it stood. I'm sorry, he says. Sorry doesn't cut it. You set the tone here and they just followed suit. You treat me like crap, move me outside in violation of our contract, I might add, and what do you expect? You're so goddamn scared of us, all you can do is hate. It's not my fault. He whips the door open, but I'm able to turn my back before he sees my face. I don't hate anybody. Black, white, green, khaki, or super. It's always the same. You forget we're your sons and daughters and neighbors and friends. And distill us all down to something over which we don't have a goddamn choice. We agree to stay out of each other's way. But that isn't good enough. You have to prove you're just as good or better than us. Like it's a goddamn contest. But when we really need to work together, you all stand back and watch. That's all you're good for. Watching. 
You don't scare me. You freaks and monsters, you can't even do right what you're supposed to be good at, saving people. If I had my way, you'd all be rounded up and I'd- I slide the mask back on and turn to face him. I grab Henderson by the lapels of his blue Walmart mest and shove him against the wall and hiss. You don't deserve us. He slicked with sweat and pale. Clearly, this situation isn't covered in the Walmart operations manual. Henderson stammers and sputters, but doesn't say a word. I hoist him up to his toes before snapping my fingers open and letting him drop to the concrete floor. Chapter 7 I gather all the remaining brochures and stuff them into the recycling dumpster behind the store. The Union Jet circles above. The loading dock offers just enough space for them to land and pick me up. Usually we ask for a cordoned area in the regular parking lot, but today that didn't seem appropriate. I wave up as the jet swoops low and slow before beginning final descent and step back as the engine wash kicks up a cloud of sand and debris. The door opens. I raise my arm. How did it go? Titanica grips the leather loop hanging from the ceiling and hoists me inside. I stare at her for a moment, but there aren't enough negative adjectives to describe the day and I don't have the energy to choose one. I force a smile. Just glad to be going home. I strap into a seat and notice something folded into the edge of my belt. A card. Showing a man in blue tights. Guiding a damaged airplane towards a safe runway. I close my eyes as Red Raven thrusts the jet skyward. And that was our story. A couple of people have written in wondering what kind of arrangement Escape Pod has for doing a story series like this, oftentimes wanting to pitch their own. The honest answer is that there is no arrangement. Jeffrey Derego was the first person back in June of last year to query us and ask if we'd be interested in doing a series. I said he was welcome to send us the stories, one at a time, like any other submission. That it wouldn't matter to us whether they were linked, as long as each one stood on its own. I think it's to everybody's good fortune that most of the stories he sent us have been good enough to buy, and that we've been able to present these to you. So our Halloween episode was Stephen Deadman's A Single Shadow. This is where I'm supposed to talk about the feedback, but that's unusually hard this time. There was plenty of feedback, but usually it's not hard to pick out general themes in the conversation, and this time everyone seemed to have something different to say. Waparius and Slick commented that it was good to hear an Australian reader for a change, Chris and Matthew thought my explicit sex warning in the beginning was a bit overstated. Jonathan didn't like the info dump about Japanese culture, while Tyler and Tokyo did like it. I think the best line came from Yak Socks, who said, I thought the end was a bit odd. It was that guy's chance to have a threesome with himself and a beautiful woman. Who hasn't let that cross their mind before? On that question, I have to grudgingly plead the fifth. I spent last week's outro talking about our intent to put up an online store for our archive CDs. I did this saying it'd be up this week. I'm not a liar on that, but it has taken a bit longer than I expected. I was hoping to have it up today. The biggest setback was an inexplicable failure to find a Windows machine that works, just when I needed one to drive the CD duplicator. Things are looking better now, and I'm going to stick my neck out and say that Friday is the date we should be ready for business. Just so I don't slack out of that, I'll give you the URL. It's poddisc.com. That's P-O-D-D-I-S-C dot com. Again, if you go there Thursday and it doesn't work, then sorry. Come back on Friday. I do hope you'll find it worth it, though. 
The CDs look absolutely incredible, and it's a great way to support Escape Pod. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Take one down, pass it around, we've still got all the episodes of Escape Pod on the wall. If you like being disturbed, you should also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org. That's with a P-S-E-U-D-O. Why do we pick a name so hard to spell? So that you can prove yourselves worthy. Yeah, that's the ticket. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, that's D-A-I-K-A-I-J-U. Their name is hard to spell because giant monsters like to show off. Check them out at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, A hero is no braver than an ordinary man, but he is brave five minutes longer. We'll see you next week. Meanwhile, have fun. Have fun editing that together, Steve.